But the title of my sermon this morning is Dealing with a Divine Dilemma. Dealing with a Divine Dilemma. When you think about your favorite movie, or two or three movies, if you have a hard time narrowing that down, uh, chances are that one of the reasons you love the movie you do is because in the first five minutes, um, there is a tension that is introduced. There is some problem that's going to be resolved in the next two hours, or if you're uh, a Lord of the Rings fan, the next three and a half hours, whatever it is. Uh, and, and during that two hours, three hours, you're going to see this plot get worked out. The wrinkles are going to get ironed out, and everything is going to end well. Um, in fact, we're so accustomed to this plot in the movies that when we watch a TV show, uh, like The Wonder Years, this is not in my notes, but I have to talk about this. I love the show The Wonder Years. I grew up watching uh, Kevin Arnold and Winnie Cooper. And I remember the last episode when they're, they're on different buses and they go different directions. I laid there on my bed as, I don't know, 12 or 13 year old watching this last episode for the first time and almost cried. I mean, I just, I couldn't even believe uh, that, that they were not going to get married and, you know, anyway, <clears throat> move on. Sorry. Went way down the wrong path there. Um, but we always want life to end up like the good movies, like the good TV shows where everything just kind of works out. Uh, but the reality is we face problems, we face struggles, we face dilemmas, we face addictions, we face marriages that implode, we lose loved ones. We have many things that go on in our world that do not always get tied up neatly like a beautiful Christmas present at the end of that day. Wouldn't we say that to be the case? This morning, if I asked you to raise your hand in this place, if you're battling some dilemma, some struggle, and, and it's not yet been resolved, and you're waiting to see how God is going to work it out, it would amaze us to see the number of people in this place that would put their hand up and say, that's my day today. That's where I'm at right now. And so we face dilemmas in life that don't always get worked out. The story of Habakkuk is the story of one man wrestling with God as he struggles to come to grips with this tension that God is introducing in his life and in the land of Judah. And, and he's struggling to, to figure out the mysterious ways that God works to accomplish his purpose in the world. You'll remember from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we talked about Habakkuk fearing that God had grown indifferent. Okay, God, why are you letting this go on? How long do I have to keep calling out to you before you get in here, God, and you do something about the problems plaguing your people? How long, O oh Lord? And now, in this section today, in this passage, Habakkuk's concern is not God's indifference. It's God's inconsistency. That, wait a minute, God, the, the God I know you to be is not in keeping with the answer that you're giving me right now about what you're doing in the land of Judah. That you're being inconsistent with your character because as we just heard, God says, I'm raising up the bitter and wicked, hasty Chaldeans. It's the same thing as the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire. And so when God answers this question, I'm raising up this wicked empire to punish my people, the question in Habakkuk's mind is, God, you're holy. You're righteous. You're sovereign. You are good. How could you allow a wicked nation like the Chaldeans to prosper and use them to punish your own people? And so what we find in Habakkuk chapter 1 through 2, 1 is very much a divine dilemma 
that Habakkuk is kind of giving back to God and saying, I don't understand what you're doing, how you're working. And so the question we might ask today is something like this. See if you've asked this question in your life. God, what do I do when I don't understand your ways? What do I do, God, when I look around and I see things going on in my life and I can't map it out, I can't plot it, I can't outline it, I can't find a good reason. There's no silver lining in my suffering. What do we do? This morning we want to look at four very practical steps. Very practical steps for how we can deal with dilemmas in our lives like Habakkuk dealt with in his. I listened to a sermon this past weekend by Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler preaches at the Village Church in Texas. And he talked about how a few years ago, I think three years ago, on Thanksgiving, he he went into the seizure and he fell out in his floor. And they found out what caused the seizure was a brain tumor in the front portion of his brain. And, and he talked about this whole experience and how he had suffered and he had you know, battled through all of the surgery and the rehab and everything that goes along with it. And he spoke directly to this question about dealing with dilemmas in our lives. And he said this, and this so just gripped me. I listened to it three times. He said, was that doctor, was he doing something wrong to me? Was he, he being harsh to me by putting me in this halo thing? And by cutting my, sawing my cranium open and scooping out the front part of my frontal lobe of my brain? Was he doing something wrong? Was he being unjust by using this scalpel? Was it painful? It was terribly painful. Would I want to go through it again? Not at all. He says, but it saved my life. And he talks about how even the sufferings that we undergo, the things we face, we don't understand and sometimes can't see a good reason for But we know there is a good, eternal, sovereign, faithful, holy God behind all of it. And He is working His purposes. That comes from a pastor who recently wasn't sure if he was going to be living, much less standing up and preaching a couple of years down the road. Let's go to Habakkuk chapter 1 and we're going to look at verse 5 through 11. At God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. You remember verse 1 through 4, Habakkuk says, God, please help. And instead of sending help, God pronounces judgment on Judah. Look at verse 5. This is not a coffee cup verse. None of you this morning probably grabbed a cup out of here. Or if if you did, you probably need to get rid of this cup. None of you grabbed this cup with Habakkuk 1.5 on there and took a big sip out of this one. Listen to what he says. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now that sounds like that belongs on a coffee cup. Wow, man, God's doing this great thing in my life and I'm not even going to believe it is so good until God tells him what it is he's doing. For look, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation that marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. See, God gives him the bad news. It's not like, do you want the bad news? Do you want the good news? And Habakkuk goes, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, okay. No. There was no good news. Not immediately. And so he gives him the bad news and he says, in effect, hey, Habakkuk, are you sitting down for this? Because if you're not, you might want to grab a seat for what I'm about to tell you. He says, look around. Pay attention. 
When you read the paper and you drink your morning coffee, do you remember the Chaldeans? Do you remember the Babylonians? That wicked and hasty nation, impetuous, bitter. They storm across the earth and they just laugh at kings. And they take over fortresses. I'm raising them up. I'm doing something so big, so great that you can't even conceive of it. God promises judgment. But he promises it after he warned Judah. Do you remember Deuteronomy 28? You may or may not. I'm going to read it for you. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 28. Here's what God says to his people. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands I'm giving you today, the Lord will set you high above the nations of the world. You'll experience all the blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Verse 15. But... If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you, listen to this, all these curses will come over you and overwhelm you. And here's what he says is going to happen. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth, and it will swoop down on you like a vulture. Some of your translations say vulture. That's probably the best translation. The ESV puts it as an eagle because in in our land, that's kind of what we picture. But a bird of prey, a vulture or an eagle. He says they're going to swoop down on you. It's a nation whose language you do not understand. Verse 50, a fierce and heartless nation that shows no respect for the old, no pity for the young. Its armies, listen to this, its armies will devour your livestock and your crops. You'll be destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, olive oil, calves, or lambs. Go read Habakkuk 3 later this afternoon. Habakkuk says, if there's no grain, if there's no wine, if the olive crop fails, if there's no cattle in the stalls, if there's no field, no no herd in the field, I will rejoice in you. God tells them in Deuteronomy 28, if you don't obey me, all these things are going to happen. And they are uber specific. And they're happening. Or they're about to happen. He says, you will starve to death. He says, the cities, they will attack your cities with your fortified walls. Do you remember that? The the Babylonians laugh at the fortified cities. He says that. He says, the walls you trusted to protect you are knocked down. How eerie is that for us to read on our side of things, our perspective? God said, all these specific things are going to happen if you disobey. And what did the people of Judah go on to do but disobey? And so Habakkuk hoped that God would send help, but God says, no, I told you this was going to happen. And then he goes on to describe the Babylonian war machine. Listen to this, verse 7 through 11. Their justice and their dignity go forth from themselves. They answer to no one. They are above the law in their own mind. They are the law. Some of these old westerns, I love to go on Turner Classic movies sometimes and just spend 30 minutes watching an old western, okay? And one of the things that will happen is some bad guy rides into town and he, he respects nobody. He doesn't care what, what so-and-so lawman says. He's above the law and in his own mind, he is the law. He makes up the rules as he goes. That's what's going on right here with the Chaldeans. Verse 8, the Lord pictures their army like wild beasts of prey. He compares them to leopards, to evening wolves, which have not eaten for 24 hours, and they're hungry, and they're ready to devour. He compares them to vultures or eagles, and he says they all had this insatiable appetite. An appetite they can't be quenched until they swoop down, they plunder and pillage, they kill, and then they ride off with everything that is precious to you. That's how armies were paid in this day. 
There was no paycheck. It was like when you came into town and you knocked down the walls and you raided a house, whatever you could scoop up and take with you belonged to you. So if there was no conquest, there was no payday. So how inspired are these guys to fight? They want to sustain their own living. Not only that, they want to improve their living. They're inspired by their own bloodthirst and greed. Verse 10, the Lord says they laugh, they scoff at kings. Do you remember last week I told you that they put kings, enemy captives, kings, they put them in cages. And they would show them off as trophies to demoralize them and devalue them. And make them almost forget that they ever had a throne and a kingdom. It says they laugh at fortified cities. They build ramps of dirt. That's where your scripture says they pile up earth. They developed a method basically of quickly uh, accumulating a, a pile of dirt. And they would run up this ramp into the city. They had diggers who would go at the bottom of the walls and they would dig out tunnels under the walls and they would go in and eventually the walls would weaken and fall in. And so in that day, you had to have strong walls to fortify your city. You depended on those walls. In fact, if you go back and look, many times people lived in those walls. They were wide. They made their houses in them. And so they're tearing down the thing that they're trusting in. And the archers the whole time are raining down arrows as the enemy's just advancing plundering, pillaging, slaughtering. No one could stand against them. They were fierce, cruel, swift, and fearless. And this is who God picked to punish His people. It absolutely makes no sense. My dad coached my ball teams from the time I was four until I went to middle school. And I can remember him pulling out. We, we didn't have those fancy little whiteboards or anything. You know, we were small time. He'd pull out a notepad and scribble something down right quick. And he'd draw up a play and it was supposed to work. And if the play worked, we would win the game. No coach would draw up this plan. Only the sovereign God of the universe could draw up something like this and bring good out of wickedness and evil. It speaks to his power that he's able to use evil in such a way to bring about Good, it doesn't make sense to our minds. Habakkuk was speechless. Do you remember this day 15 years ago? Remember watching the TV screens? I was a freshman at Appalachian State University. A few weeks into my time there. And I'm in the student union. And I'm watching these TV screens. And, and my roommate says, come on over here. And I was eating something. Very few things pulled me away from my food. So you have four kids. <laughs> but I'm sitting there eating, and he says, come here and watch this. Come here and look at this. This is incredible. Someone just ran into a tower in New York City. So I get up, and I leave my bagel, and I run over there, and I'm watching this TV screen. And a few minutes later, whatever the interval was, I don't recall right off, another plane hits this tower. And all of this mass destruction just begins to pile in the streets, and you're watching people respond, and you're just utterly speechless. We had no idea, at least in the general populace, this was going to take place. That's how Habakkuk feels. But here's the bad part. He knows it's coming. God tells him, I'm about to do this. It's going to get real ugly. Things are going to get real bad around where you're at. And he knows, man, this is going to be terrible. He was speechless. My question to you this morning that I'm hoping to give you something to hang on to, a peg to hang your hat on, is this. What do you do when your world falls apart? 
What do you do when your world crumbles in like Habakkuk is about to? This is 605 BC. Habakkuk's talking to God. God's telling him, this thing's going to happen. It happens in 597 with Nebuchadnezzar. Eight years later. He's got eight years to sit on this. Imagine that kind of terror. Imagine going, going to work for eight years knowing that this whole thing's going to happen and it's going to get awful. We speculate about the economy. We speculate about the election. We speculate about many things, but do any of us really know? Not a chance. Habakkuk knew beyond a shadow of a doubt because God said, it's about to happen. James Boyce, a wonderful commentator and pastor, says, when things go wrong in Christians' lives, generally as a pastor, for decades, he has seen one of two wrong responses. There's a right response, of course. But one of two wrong responses. He says the first one is we withdraw. When things go wrong in our world as Christians, we pull back. We withdraw. We drop out of Christian activities. We stop going to church. We stop responding to Christian friends who text us or Facebook us or call us or knock on our door. We pull back into a corner and we retreat because we don't know what to do. Others, Boyce says, abandon their belief in God. They conclude this. I must have been wrong about God this whole time. Because he allowed this terrible thing to happen in my life. I can't see a good reason for it. I can't understand it and wrap my mind around it. So I must have been wrong about God. Boyce says both are wrong. He says, look at what Habakkuk does in 12 through 2.1. He takes four practical steps. These come from Martin Lloyd-Jones, British preacher, mid-20th century. I've adapted them and updated the language. Four steps. Listen to these. Get these. Number one, we ought to slow down our reaction time. Slow down our reaction time. Habakkuk had eight years to sit on this thing. Plenty of time to think about it before it all happened. Most of us have a tendency to speak first and then think later. In the old westerns, the old TCM Westerns, Turner Classic Movies, what do they do? Shoot first, ask questions later. That's generally how we respond. But Habakkuk turns his thoughts to God because he's mentally processing everything God says before he delivers the message. Did he deliver it? Yes, he did. But he's going back and forth with God over this thing and he's slowing down his reaction time. Ian Bounds in his work on prayer says this. Listen to this. This is so good. Talking to men for God is a great thing. But talking to God for men is greater still. James 1.19, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak. I think somebody used to say it to me like this. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You got to use those ears twice as much as you use that mouth. I never figured that thing out. I have a major tendency sometimes to quickly react instead of thoughtfully respond. Last week, as I'm preparing this, someone said to me, how do you overcome this? And I thought, not well. But I told him, here's what I said. There are three people in my life. Two of them are in this room this morning. There are three people in my life that when I face a situation where I don't know what to do, if if I have the, the capacity in that moment to think about it, I picture these three people. What would they do right now? These are all wonderful Christian mentors and leaders of mine. Examples. What does Hebrews say? Look at your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate them. So I look at these three people and I think, I wonder what they would do. 
And I do my best to emulate what I think their actions might be. They slow down their reaction time. When I succeed, I look back and I go, that was good. That helped me to picture them. We need to slow it down when we face a dilemma or a problem we don't know what to do with. Second, we need to stick to the facts. You say, what does that mean? We need to steer clear of guesswork. We need to avoid speculation. And we need to get our feet on some good ground. What is good ground? It's God's Word. Objective truths that don't change with subjective circumstances. Okay, Let me give you an example. When I was a, a freshman in Boone... Uh, at Appalachian, people warned me about the winters. Oh, they're going to be terrible. Man, the wind's going to blow and, and all this other, you know. Uh, I had a friend who used to open the window, and the way he would determine if he needed to wear a coat that day was he would take a big, deep breath of that winter air and boom. And if it made him cough and he couldn't breathe, he had to put a coat on today. You know, I didn't go for all that. But I do remember vividly one time as a freshman, the winter, it was so bad that day, I put my coat on, I pulled my hood up, and I walked backward to class so that my eyelashes didn't freeze. Beulah remembers this. She knows. And I'm doing this right here. And I would turn around and see who was behind me. And then I would keep going. And I would make my way to class like that some days. It was so cold. Now, I never fell. But I could have fell really easily doing that. Why? Because I can't see where I'm going. I can't see where the good ground is. When you're walking on a slippery sidewalk and it's been scraped, there's still some spots you got to avoid, right? So what do you do? You keep your eyes on the path and you step on the good ground. No one intentionally steps on the icy spot unless they're a knucklehead and they want to show off. You want to put your feet on the good ground. And Boyce or Lloyd-Jones says we have to find the good ground spiritually speaking. When we run into a dilemma, when we face a problem, we don't know immediately how to solve it. We need to find the spots that we know we can put our feet. Where are those found? In Scripture. Do your circumstances change? Of course they do. Moment by moment. Has God's Word ever changed? It's always been the same since it came forth from His mouth. And we hold it in our hands. And so we have to keep our eyes on that good ground. That's what Habakkuk does right here. He, he talks about four truths about God that are good ground. Listen to these. In verse 12. Where is it? Where is it? There it goes. Go to verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, God? Are you not eternal? Second, he says, Lord, you ordained them as a judgment and you established them for reproof. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. That God is in control of everything. In verse 12, he says, you, O rock, have established them. We run past this way too quickly in what he, in what he means here. When he's talking about God being his rock, it's a picture of permanence and stability over time. I was talking with someone this week that was sharing a really awesome story with me. A member of their family was going through a really difficult time, really battling through some things. And they were going through some stuff that their, their dad had found. And they found some rocks that the father had brought home from the Holy Land. And, and the wife took one of those rocks from the Holy Land and put it in the windowsill to remind that family, God is our rock. God is faithful. He is constant. He is present. He is unchanging when our circumstances overwhelm us. He is our rock. And then fourth, he says of God, you're holy. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You see, these attributes don't change. 
God is who he is. He can't stop being himself. We need to stick to the facts and put our feet on firm ground. But you know what we also need to do? We need to apply. This is number three. Apply what we know to where we are. I changed the wording from Lloyd-Jones. But we need to apply the principle to the problem, Lloyd-Jones says. Apply what we know to where we are. I had somebody tell me one time, you can only work with what you know. You know why they told me this? Because I'm bad to speculate on things and try to put these mysterious pieces of the puzzle together and work out the problem. He says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You don't have the mind of God. You have to work with the things that you know. And I know this about God. He never changes. That's a good place to say amen. Many of you in this room are battling through some things. Where you need to hang on to this bedrock truth that there is a sovereign God in heaven who never changes. And when you went to bed last night because you can't cope with the physical weakness, your infirmities, and you need sleep to restore your body. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He watches over you. He is always present. In the ICU room. God's there in the ICU room. On the good day when the baby's born and things are going well and they put the little footprint on the paper and give it to you, what did he say? Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you every part of the whole, every integer. Habakkuk lists some things. He says, God, in verse 14, you make man like the fish of the sea. You make us like floating fish. They're shooting fish in a barrel here, God. What we don't know just by reading this is part of the Babylonian empire was built. The culture was built on fishing. And so that's why Habakkuk says, God, you made us like floating fish. And these Babylonians, these expert fishermen, hook us. And they catch us in their net. And then they rejoice in their net because their net caught us. That's, I'm paraphrasing 14 through 17. And then verse 17, he says, he just keeps on emptying his net mercilessly without concern for those he's slaughtering, the Babylonians. He says, God, the problem's still here. Please listen to me. Don't check out. Give me, give me a few more minutes, okay? Listen to this. God, the problem's still here. I'm going to paraphrase. I've done everything I'm supposed to do, God. I slowed down my reaction time. I stuck to the facts. I tried to apply them to my situation right here, God. But the problem's not gone away. You ever been there? What do you practically do with that? Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. If you're still in doubt, Commit the problem to God in faith. Commit the problem to God in faith. You've tried everything and nothing is working. Matt Chandler in his sermon says it like this. We need to acknowledge our limitations. See, ever since the, 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 uh, the what is it called? The period of enlightenment, the reasoning, right. Ever since that, what happened is man's reasoning was elevated to a place of Above God. If man can figure it out and understand it, then it must be right. If man can't make sense of it, then it's no good. Matt Chandler gives a base example like this. He says, I have a 13-year-old daughter. I have a 7-year-old daughter. He says, I look at my 13-year-old daughter sometimes and I say, aren't you smarter than your 7-year-old daughter? 
And some of you younger sisters in here are cringing right now. He says, aren't you smarter than your seven-year-old daughter? Or seven-year-old sister? Yes, yes, I am. Of course I am. How, how are you smarter? Is it because you've read more books? Is it because you've... It's because I'm older. I just know more because I'm older. And then Matt Chandler looks at his 13-year-old daughter and he goes, let's just say that your 42-year-old dad is smarter than his 13-year-old daughter. Could that be the case? He says, I've never gotten a straight answer on that one yet. She's never looked at me and said, yeah. He said, she just smiles at me like she lost the chess match and just goes on. And then Chandler takes it to the word. He says, could it be possible that an eternal, sovereign, infinite God who is outside of time knows some things that we can't know in our finite minds? Isn't that possible? And then you kind of realize, how limited am I? So what does Habakkuk do? He gives it to God. He says, I'm climbing up in the watchtower. I'm going to wait to see what God's going to say. But as we wrap it up, I want to take it back to something. Did you notice God did not answer Habakkuk's question? Why are you letting this wickedness go on? Why are you idly sitting here and just watching all this unfold? And God answers him not by telling him why, but by telling him what he's doing about it. He never answers the question Habakkuk asked. He didn't give him an explanation. Warren Wiersbe says this. Hang on to this. This is good. You ready? God gave Habakkuk a revelation, not an explanation. For what we always need in times of doubt is a new view of God. We need to see God more clearly in our dilemmas. Difficulties, doubts, dilemmas have a way of blurring our view. For Habakkuk, the valley for him became the place of vision. One writer said this. Listen to this carefully. Because at first you may disagree with this. You may kind of burr up. I want you to hear it. God's first interest, his first interest, is not in our prosperity or our political power. The lesson of the history of God's people is that God is not primarily, first place, committed to the peace, security, and prosperity of his people. Consider Adam and Eve. How did he respond when they sinned? He removed them from the garden. He took them away from the place of peace and security and stability. The message of Habakkuk is that God is interested first. First. In restoring us to a right relationship with himself. You know why? Because without that restored relationship, all the earthly peace, the financial stability, the security, the good happy thoughts and the nice cups of coffee, they're all an empty facade. The Babylonian exile is is an example. A dire example of how committed God is to restoring man to himself. And I got to thinking, you know, this whole thing really mirrors the New Testament, doesn't it? When Jesus told Peter, please listen. When Jesus told Peter, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. What did Peter try to do? No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, you've got it all wrong. That's not how it's going to happen. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to the work of God. 
You know what he was saying to him? To borrow the words of Habakkuk? He was saying, I'm doing something so great. In your day, Peter, you're going to see it so great that you would not believe it even if someone told you about it. Peter didn't. Peter couldn't see it. It didn't make sense. For Jesus' followers, their worst nightmare turned out to be God's perfect plan to save them. So when it seemed like the enemy was about to land the final blow and Christianity was on the ropes, God used the evil actions of the Jews and the Romans to reconcile a lost and wayward world to himself through his son. Is that not the answer to Habakkuk's question? Doesn't that ultimately answer it all? That God inserts himself into history. What other religion claims that? That God inserts himself down into the gutter of our suffering. The righteous for the unrighteous. He trades places with us. Doing a work in our day. That's still almost unfathomable to make sense of. That's the gospel. That I don't deserve it. And you don't deserve it. And no one living and breathing in this place deserves the grace that God offers. But yet still people almost continue to disbelieve it when they're told. If things continue to go bad to worse. Like Habakkuk in his day. May God give us the resilient faith and the presence of spiritual mind, the mind of Christ, to slow down our reaction time, to filter our troubles through His truth, to apply those principles to our problem, and then sometimes when we can't see the way in front of us, to commit it to Him in faith. That cross looked like the midnight of the soul. It was the dawning of a perfect and new day. God is eternal. God is sovereign. God is a faithful rock to hang on to. And He is holy. I know this. Our God never 